Well, stand with me this morning as we rise to read our, our sermon text from Psalm 121. I hope you have a Bible with you. It's always good to have one as we study God's Word together that you might observe the truth with your own eyes. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, you can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 516. If you weren't with us last week, we began what should be about a four-month-long series through what's commonly called the Psalms of Ascent, so Psalms 120 through 134, Psalms that were sung as God's people of old would make their way up to these three annual feasts in Jerusalem. And we come to what is surely the most well-known of all the Psalms of Ascent this morning. It's one of the most beloved Psalms in all the Bible, Psalm 121. So let me read those eight verses for us and pray that God would bless our study and then we'll begin together. So hear now as as God speaks to you once again through his word. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life and the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks to us and that your words are perfect, that they are powerful, that they are pure unto our hearts and unto our consciences. I do comfort weary souls this morning. I do comfort afflicted hearts this day as we want to know your confidence, as we want to know your compassion and your mercy. Help me to preach as you say I must. Help us to hear as you say we must. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Some of you may have been raised in a home that's somewhat like my own in terms of you remember, maybe vividly, days of old when a parent would read you a particular book. And my father was the book reader in our family and still in every way is the book reader in the Stone family. And so I have vivid recollections of dad chanting this song-like kid's book called Crocodile Beat or before even the movies came out, as he read to us the Lord of the Rings, his haunting voice of Gollum hissing about into our ears, or his relatively dramatic performances of certain Bible stories. And one of the books that we loved the most as kids was one that we loved so much that you usually would find it in tatters. It was this abridgment of John Bunyan's well-known book, Pilgrim's Progress. It was an abridgment titled Dangerous Journey. And it was only later in life that I discovered that the title of that abridgment was actually taken from the subtitle of the classic work, because as Bunyan, along with many Puritans of his time, was prone to do, his original title was very long. This is what it said, the pilgrim's progress from this world to that which is to come, delivered under the similitude of a dream, wherein discovered the manner of his setting out his dangerous journey and his safe arrival at the desired country. And perhaps you're familiar enough with Bunyan's book to know as he's trying to portray through this allegory the nature of the Christian life as a dangerous journey. 
has this long list of uh, locations that he has a pilgrim named Christian traveling through. Places like the Slough of Despond, Vanity Fair, the Valley of Humiliation, the Valley of the Shadow of Death, and Doubting Castle. Because you surely know today you've lived life in Jesus Christ, even if you've only been a Christian for a few months. Certainly, many of you have been Christians for years. You know that the Christian life is one that is, spiritually speaking, a dangerous journey. What comes but sometimes destruction, sometimes death, sometimes doubt, sometimes despair, and sometimes great difficulty. And what we have before us today in Psalm 121 is a song for such sojourners. It's a prayer for such pilgrims. When things seem altogether impossible to keep climbing up to the Mount Zion above that heavenly Jerusalem to which God has called us in Jesus Christ. So kids, if you're careful readers of the Bible, you may have noticed as I was reading the text that six times Psalm 121 uses this word in either a noun or verbal form, keep, which is the central point of this passage. If you glance down again at verse 5, how it begins, that's what we're meant to see simply this morning, the Lord is your keeper. It's a psalm then about security. It's a psalm about where stability is found. It's a psalm then that speaks to one of the ordinary and most basic of human desires, namely that desire for security. It was in the 1960s that a psychologist named Abraham Maslow created what's now well known as his hierarchy of needs that had everyone talking and at the very baseline of human needs, according to Maslow, is nothing other than just food and, and shelter, really actually food and clothing. And then just above that, the next most basic human desire is what he called the desire for security, which could show itself up in job security, relational security, even shelter security, all of these things. And you might be in here today and you feel as though, perhaps like the psalmist in the initial part of our passage, that you're grasping for something to hold on to in the midst of trial, in the midst of, of trouble. Everyone always is looking, isn't it true, for security somewhere or in someone. And this is a rich psalm that simply tells you the security that every heart needs. And as we'll think about in a variety of different ways this morning, it's stability that only can be found in Yahweh himself, the Lord, is your keeper. So if you wanted to extend that out into a little bit more of an elaborate theme this morning, we might simply say that the keeper keeps his pilgrim people. That's all that Psalm 121 is meant to communicate. God keeps his people. And you could break up the psalm in a couple of different ways. You might notice verse 1 gives a question, verse 2 gives an answer, and then really verse 3 through 8 is a commentary on the question and answer. Or you might notice that it really comes in four stanzas, four stanzas, two verses each. And so that's how we'll walk through it, as I want you to see four particular truths about the Lord who keeps his people. The first thing I want you to see is he is your creator. Look at verse 1. Once again, the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now it's not exactly clear what the hills he has in mind are. Some people would say he's looking to the hills for his help. Or what's certainly more likely is he's looking for help from those hills. Because you might know if you were journeying your way up to Jerusalem, no matter what side you were coming from, you'd have to make this ascent, and normally you'd have to pass by these hills that were full of narrow paths, slippery slopes, wild animals, even robbers. 
In the parable of the Good Samaritan, when Jesus is talking about this man who went down from Jerusalem, what did he encounter in this area but falling in among robbers who beat him to death? So as they were making the climb up to that holy city above, they were going to have to pass through some degree of tribulation and, and difficulty. And where is help to be found when difficulties on the horizon? When hardship is soon going to greet you, where would you find help? Now, our small slice of the Christian tradition has often made much of catechisms throughout the centuries. And no doubt, the two most famous catechisms among Protestants are the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism. And no doubt, the most famous question and answer in each one of those catechisms is the first question and answer. As Westminster asks, what? What is the chief end of man? And what does Heidelberg ask? But what is your only comfort in life and death? Well, here is one of the Psalms' most famous catechisms. It's a question that's going to give you the answer in verse 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Verse 2 answers, my help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. It's the creator who can care for his creatures. It's the creator who keeps his people. So what do you know, of course, about the creator himself? Well, the scientists tell us today that there are two billion trillion stars in the universe. That's a mind-boggling number, isn't it? Two billion trillion stars in the universe. Well, Psalm 147 verse 4 tells us that the Lord created all of those stars. 200 billion trillion stars. Not just that. The verse ends by saying he named 200 billion trillion stars. The God who created the universe created you. You look at the mighty majestic mountain and you know that he formed that. And he also formed you. The God who fills the oceans. He fills your heart. It's the God who stretches out the sky above that stretched out your soul before him. Anytime you stand before a mighty mountain, maybe you've done this before, you can't help, can you, but be overawed at the majesty of God's power in creation. And what you're meant to see in this psalm is you look at that and you know God is able. God is powerful to care for you in the midst of whatever hills confront you. Because it's true that you and I aren't going to pass through in all likelihood our Christian life often meeting physical hills with wild animals and robbers and other slippery slopes and narrow paths. But you will meet hills of some kind, and you'll meet hills perhaps even this day, when a mountain comes along the way in your spiritually dangerous journey, and you're tempted yet again to that secret sin that no one else knows about, from where will your help come? When the discouragement will strike this week yet again, and seem to overflow into your heart with despair that paralyzes your soul, from where will your help Come, Or maybe Thanksgiving will arrive on Thursday. That's the first time you won't talk to a loved one on the phone because they're no longer here. You won't see them darken across your door because they died recently. From where will your help come? My help, the psalmist says, comes from Yahweh, who is my creator. Number two, you see in verse three and four, he is your defender. Verse three begins, he will not let your foot be moved. He will not let your foot slip, we might say, students. 
a couple of weeks ago when Emily was working at the hospital where she works once a week as a NICU nurse. So I was hanging around with the kids and a few of them had come inside from some extended time playing outside. And one of the children was noticeably absent. And so I said, hey, where's your brother? And someone responded, well, he's just playing Alex Honnold up on a tree. And you may not know the name Alex Honnold. He's the most famous free solo climber in the world. And it was, of course, just the evening before that I had showed them clips of this unbelievable climber going up these summits that are altogether scary, thousands of feet into the air with no ropes holding him, no ropes protecting him, when just the smallest little slip of the foot of the hand means certain death. And I thought about that this week. He will not let your foot what? Slip. Isn't it so true that oftentimes in the Christian life you feel like you're getting ready to fall? Perhaps you've even done some degree of climbing and you know the earnestness with which maybe just a couple of fingers hold on to something that you not fall. And the good news here, of course, is God will not let your foot slip. The power is not in you, is it? That he can hold that foot in place. He can hold that hand in place. He will keep you stable. He will keep you secure and steadfast. And the text goes on to say in verse 3 and 4 why you can have that degree of confidence. It's because God doesn't sleep. You see verse 3 and 4, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Maybe you've been on a road trip before and you made the decision as a family that you're going to drive through the night. And you're driving through the night and suddenly you get drowsy. Suddenly you get a little sleepy. Suddenly, the eyes begin to fall and you begin to veer towards the shoulder. And rumble strips wake you up. And your spouse in the seat next to you says, is everything okay? And you're like, yes, everything's just fine. (laughs) And of course, it's not. Because you're in danger of falling asleep unto death, aren't you? And this would have been altogether striking for Jews at this time in the ancient world because it was totally unlike the other gods of the world. That Yahweh doesn't sleep. He doesn't ever get drowsy. You don't need to wake him up. He's never needed an alarm clock. He doesn't need to get alert. So you might know the story of the great prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. He's having this religious contest is really what it is with these prophets of Baal, this, this false god, this pagan deity that God's people are worshiping at that time. And so they have this religious context. So what they're going to do, they're going to take this sacrifice, they put it on an altar. And the prophets of Baal are going to call down fire from heaven. And Elijah is going to call down fire from heaven and see which God can actually do that. Now, if you know the story, the prophets of Baal go first. They call down fire from heaven, but no fire comes. So they engage in this pagan ritual of cutting themselves and bloodletting, asking for fire to fall from heaven. And no fire comes. And Elijah lifts up his voice and begins to mock them. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he needs to be aroused because he's sleeping. Because, of course, as the story goes on, Yahweh is never sleeping. Lord, let your people know this day that you are God in Israel. Now what does fire do? It falls down and consumes the sacrifice. God is always watching over his people. He knows when you are slipping. He is not surprised when you need support. Would you not then go to him and say, Lord, help my foot not slip. 
You said my foot won't be moved in this calamity, in this crisis. Won't you strengthen me because you're my defender? Number three, the Lord is your shelter. You see verse 5, a central truth of the text, the Lord is your keeper. It goes on to say that Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. It's been interesting, hasn't it, in recent months as things in the nation have gone the way that they've gone and you've gotten to greet, even in this local church, many people that have moved from different parts of the country and they often moved even during the summer months and you would begin to talk to them about just the summer that is a Texas summer and the degree of heat that belongs to the sunshine down here in the south. And many of you know the, the power of a burning sun, don't you? It's why you can go to a local sports tournament during the summer. And what you'll see is, invariably, it seems like every player and every parent is gathered in the small section of shade that belongs to that field. Maybe it's a tree, maybe it's a tent, maybe it's some other covering that's been put up. So desperate are people to find shelter from the sun. And such a traveler at this time in the nation of Israel would have longed for Shelter would have longed for shade from not just the sun. You see in verse 6, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now because of the superstition of the time, many people have understood verse 6 to think that uh, people at this time journeying up to Jerusalem wanted protection not just from the burning power of the sun that we know full well, but at the same time the actual burning power of the moon. You may have heard the language of being moonstruck before. Even the word lunatic comes from a root word that talks about the moon, as though this moon could actually cause you to do crazy things. But actually, in context of the passage, it's better to understand verse 6 is the Lord will be your shelter, the Lord will be your shade, no matter the time of day, no matter the moment of that occasion, be it dark, be it light, be it night, be it day, the Lord will be your shelter from the storm. And surely isn't it, at this point, it's good to speak directly to those of you that might be in here today and you wouldn't say that, that you're a Christian. You wouldn't say that you're following the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Uh, what you need to know is that the Bible, if you understand its fullness, tells you that every single person in this world uh, needs shelter. They need shelter from the wrath of God that sinners deserve. Therefore, it's shelter that, that you need. And so this language of shade and shelter in verse 5 is actually used often in the Old Testament with this image of, of, of a mother hen shading her brood, her chicks, sheltering them under her wing is the idea. And you need shelter from the storm of God's wrath that falls on sinners at the end of the age if they don't repent and believe. And so Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 23, near the end of his earthly ministry, when he comes to Jerusalem, you might know this lament that he utters, that he cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her brood, but you were not willing. And some of you don't know the sheltering comfort of Jesus Christ because you're not willing. And I do pray today that the Spirit would make you willing to come to Jesus Christ to know that he alone can give you the comfort from the storm that your soul so desperately needs. He's your creator, he's your defender, he's your shelter. Fourthly, finally, verse 7 and 8, he is your preserver. You see, verse 7 begins, Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Now, students, when you come to verses like this in verse 7, you want to think carefully about what it's actually saying, lest you go astray in misunderstanding. 
Because if you just have a basic black and white reading of verse 7, it would seem as though, wouldn't it, that every Christian, everyone who follows the Lord, will never experience any kind of evil. Because the word here for evil is very broad. It can mean sin, it can mean trouble, it can mean calamity and disaster. Anything bad happening, it seems as though the Lord might be promising to keep you from all that. But of course, uh, we do have to interpret Scripture with Scripture, because what do we know about God's saints in Scripture? Evil befalls them all the time, doesn't it? Anything about Joseph in the book of Genesis for years and years, suffering unjustly and in prison. You can think of the righteous man named Job who lost his entire family and all of his great fortune. You can think of Naomi who lost her husband and her children and returned home bitter and barren. You can think of the Apostle Paul himself, imprisoned, slandered, beaten and tortured unto even a martyr's death. So surely it can't mean that. What does it mean then? Well, it has to mean the Lord will keep you through all the evil. That evil won't have the final word in your life. That calamity, destruction, death, and all harm, it will not have the final verdict on your soul. Why? Because now and forevermore, God preserves his people. Notice verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Wherever you go on your dangerous journey, he is your creator. He is your defender. He is your shelter and he is most definitely your preserver. This is the God who keeps his people. An old theologian named B.B. Warfield, nicknamed the Lion of Princeton, he once wrote this article I simply asked the question, is the shorter catechism worthwhile? Because at his time when he was writing, which really wasn't that long ago, uh, it was still understood, the shorter catechism of which our church teaches and grows in Jesus Christ. It was just kind of this old relic of piety from centuries past. And so, of course, B.B. Warfield thought the shorter catechism was worthwhile. And along the way in his article, he begins to talk about the story to try to illustrate the usefulness of a simple catechism. So he tells the story of a general who at that time in the 19th century was posted out in some western city. And if you know anything about our nation's history at that time in the 19th century, to be out in the west was to be out in the wild, wild west. Because normally every single city knew chaos and riots and all kinds of lawlessness. And this general, as he came into the city, he noticed that this peculiar man would often walk up and down the city streets through the chaos and the rioting, but he did so with this calm, collected confidence. And so as Warfield recounts, the general once came up to this man, and after he had made his stroll through the street, he looked at him and poked him right in the chest. And he said, young man, what is the chief end of man? And this man responded, well, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the general responded, I knew by your very walk that you were a shorter catechism boy. And this man responded to the general, I knew the exact same thing about you. Truth changes how you live. Truth changes how you walk. Truth changes how you make a pilgrimage toward a celestial city. You have a catechism in front of you this morning. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? Well, my help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. You can think back, can't you, on recent difficulty that the Lord has brought your way in his kind providence. 
Did the truth of this text, did the truth about God change how you traveled through that hardship? Well, as we begin to close, let me help you see a few final things to help you travel through such a dangerous journey, knowing God's keeping power. Number one, this is a psalm that tells us to learn the truth about God. Learn the truth about God. Uh, kids, I do hope that you notice as he's having this question and answer and subsequent commentary that comes in the psalm, really it's nothing more than saying this is who God is. When you need help, what do you need most? To know who God is. Parents, what your children need to know most, more than history, philosophy, sociology, is, is genuinely theology. They need to know who God is. Students, more than entertainment, pop culture, sports, or any other thing that can occupy your attention and fill your mind, what you need to know is the truth about who God is. Same thing is also true, isn't it, about all of us who are adults? Every other thing that we could add into our own life that fills it, let us know first and foremost the truth about who God is, that he is creator, that he is watcher, that he is redeemer, that he is defender, that he is preserver, that he is the one who is our only shelter. But it's not just a psalm that calls us to learn the truth about who God is. It also calls us, secondly, to lead others to the truth about who God is. Because if you look down again at verse 1 and 2 and then 3 through the end, perhaps you notice how the pronouns make this surprising, maybe even subtle shift. Because in verse 1 and 2, it's first person singular. I lift my eyes up to the hills. My help comes from the Lord. But then what does the rest of the text say? Well, it simply says, he will not let your foot be moved. He is your keeper. He will keep you from all evil. Uh, so it's hard to understand exactly what's going on with the shift in the pronouns here. But what seems most likely is that pilgrims of old, when these uh, Jews would make their ascent to Jerusalem, this would be this kind of antiphonal psalm, which means there's this like back and forth response. As though someone would utter the words of verses 1 and 2, and then perhaps a priest that's nearby, another mature leader, or someone else in the caravan would then sing out verses 3 through 8. Because what God's people need to hear from other children of God is the truth about who God is. Uh, you might have someone in your life whose foot seems to be slipping. Uh, have you told them that God will not let them fall if they look to him? You might have someone in your life that's surrounded seemingly on all sides by evil, hardship, and oppression. Have you told them that God will preserve them through all of that difficulty? Is there someone that maybe you'll encounter this week that need the promise, need the truth about who God is? Don't just learn the truth about who God is. Let it lead you to point others to the truth about who God is. Finally, of course, it points us to look to Jesus Christ, who is God's keeper for his children. Look to Jesus Christ. You know, kids, I wonder if you've ever been perhaps in a class or, or maybe it's some sort of athletic practice and, and someone said, hey, stand on one leg. You know, you can't see it because the pulpit's in the way, but I'm standing on one leg. And then you begin to wobble, right? You don't know if you can keep doing it. And the teacher or coach says, well, just look at something on the wall and stay still. And then you fix your gaze on one thing on the wall and guess what happens? It's much easier, isn't it, to be stable, to be balanced. And it's always true in the Christian's dangerous journey. If you fix your gaze on Jesus Christ, you might be so surprised the degree to which you see security because he is the keeper of God's people. We know that he preached his keeping power in John chapter 10. He said, he is the good shepherd who keeps his sheep. No one will snatch them from my hand, he says. 
John chapter 17, he prays for God's keeping power. Father, keep them in your name. He promised his keeping power as king who is the keeper in Revelation chapter 3 verse 10. I will keep you from the hour of trial. The Christian life is certainly a pilgrimage. The Christian life is certainly a spiritual journey that's full of, of danger and difficulty, doubt, and even death. What will help you? Who will help you? That will be the Lord Jesus Christ, who is nothing more than God's glory and beauty revealed in his perfect face. He who is the creator. He who is the defender, the shelter, and the preserver for weak and weary saints who likewise cry, I see those mountains. Where will I find help? Let's pray together. Lord, we know it's only by your sustaining mercy and grace that we make our way ever onward to the city that is above. Our feet often slip. Our hands often let loose. And we thank you that you still keep us. Keep us this day, keep us this week near your side. That we might rejoice and praise you evermore in your Son, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.